At the close of our previous lesson, Moses had ascended Mount Sinai at the Lord's request to receive the stone tablets on which he had written the commandments. Chapter 24 concludes with the verse, He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Our current lesson contains the instructions that Moses received from the Lord during those 40 days and nights regarding the tabernacle, Israel's wilderness sanctuary. With exhaustive detail, God specifies the size and shape of every object that will be placed within the tabernacle and the materials of which they are to be made, right down to the tent pegs. In addition to the Ark of the Covenant and other associated furnishings, the Lord provides recipes for incense and oil and detailed instructions for the consecration of the priests and the vestments they are to wear. Forty days and nights of instruction. It has not been lost on scholars and even casual readers of Scripture that God created the whole world in six days, but used 40 to instruct Moses about the tabernacle. In our next lesson, which includes chapters 35 through 40, the same detail and repetition is devoted to carrying out those commands. Combined, these 13 chapters constitute nearly a third of the entire book of Exodus. While they may be tedious and wearisome chapters to the modern reader, they are nonetheless significant and valuable chapters. For example, the volume of material demonstrates the importance of ritual worship to the Israelites. The extensive detail suggests that the form and place of divine worship should not be simply a matter of human decision, but be done instead according to God's will. The New Jerome Biblical Commentary suggests that these chapters are important in the establishment of Israel as a great nation in the Near East. For a people to be considered great, a few elements were essential. Specific traditions, the law, a great leader, Moses, a God, Yahweh, and a house for that God. It is that last great matter that we are studying. Terence Fretheim describes the whole of Exodus as a movement of a people from slavery to worship and from service to Pharaoh to service of God. He points out the contrast between Israel's forced construction of Pharaoh's buildings to the glad and obedient offering of themselves for a building for the worship of God. He also notes that the section signals a fundamental change in the way God is present with Israel. The occasional appearance of God on the mountain will become the ongoing presence of God with Israel. Rather than being on a remote mountaintop, God will now dwell with his people in a close, intimate manner. This section of the book of Exodus was compiled by editors known as the Priestly Source, who completed this work sometime during the 6th century BC, during the Babylonian exile. Fretheim stresses that this experience in exile had a profound influence on these chapters. Israel in Babylon was in need of forgiveness, just like their ancestors were after the apostasy of the golden calf. They had to be wondering what the future would be like, whether Yahweh would once again dwell in their midst, and whether God's divine promise to be their God was still valid. He suggests that the exile setting may explain the extensive detail of these chapters in several ways. First, Israel had no central sanctuary in exile. The plans are such that they could build this tabernacle when they were no longer exiled. Second, the language creates a tabernacle in the minds of those who have none. I know that as I read through the tabernacle instructions, I imagined what the end result looked like. 
unfamiliar with many of the terms and concepts, an internet search of images helped me a great deal to have a sense of its form and structure. Third, exiled for their apostasy, only God can provide the detail appropriate for the worship of God, even to the degree of providing the skills to the craftsman. Finally, Fretheim states, in view of the apostasy, it is made clear that the worship of God is not a matter in which detail can be neglected. Inattention to detail may well have been a major factor in the syncretism, the combination of different religious practices, and idolatry that developed in temple worship. A change or compromise here and there, and it does not take long for worship patterns to become diverted from the original purpose and for something quite inappropriate or foreign to emerge. On a much smaller scale, some would say this call to attention to detail is the reason for concern over liturgical irregularities that arose following the liturgical reform of Vatican II. Many are hoping that the new English translation of the Roman Missal will provide the necessary details to stress transcendence and uniformity in our Eucharistic celebrations. One of the difficulties we are confronted with by a description of a tabernacle that existed some 600 years prior to the priestly sources record is whether or not there is an historical basis for it. Whether Israel's wilderness tabernacle was actually made to the specifications found in these chapters will never be known. What can be said with certainty, however, is that these chapters are an inspired statement concerning Israel's memory of what its ideal structure ought to have been. As I mentioned earlier, the Sinai Covenant signals a fundamental change in how God is present to Israel, now dwelling in their midst. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God is present in all creation and is on familiar terms with Adam and Eve. He doesn't come down from the heavens to speak with them. He walks through the garden with them. But then comes the fall, and suddenly Adam and Eve are alienated from God. Rather than being comforted by His presence in creation, they come to fear it. They lost that familiarity with God they had in paradise. As James Plasteris writes in The God of Exodus, in the period that followed the fall, God continued to rule the course of history, and from time to time He manifested Himself to men. But God's dwelling was in heaven and no longer on earth. To interact with His people, God would come down from heaven, or, as in the case of Moses, man would ascend to meet Him. When Moses ascended Mount Sinai, God told him to build the tabernacle so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. He no longer wanted to be a remote, distant God. Unlike the religious practices of their Near East neighbors who traveled to the fixed sanctuary of their various gods, Yahweh would now be continuously present to his people, guiding them through the desert and to the promised land. How was Israel to conceive of Yahweh's abiding presence in its midst without somehow limiting His freedom and transcendence. The other Near East gods, like Baal, were thought to be in their sanctuaries through the presence of certain images or icons. Plasteris points out that Israel was forbidden to make images of Yahweh precisely because His presence was to be seen as the result of a free and personal decision on the part of God. Nonetheless, there remained the need for some kind of visible sign to call attention to the presence of the invisible Yahweh. In Israel, there were two such signs, the Ark and the Tent of Meeting. 
The Little Rock Catholic Study Bible notes that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the abiding presence of God with the people. God was enthroned above the cherubim, the guardians of the Ark. The tent symbolized God's transcendence. God came and went from the tent. It was a place of meeting. God's presence there was symbolized by the cloud. As Benz points out in our commentary, the ark was the most important part of the tabernacle, or dwelling as he refers to it. It was made of acacia, a thorny wood found in the Sinai. As we know from our reading, it was elaborately decorated with gold plating and molding to make it worthy of its sacred purpose. The cover, equally ornate, was topped by two cherubim made of gold which served as the throne for Yahweh's invisible presence. About the size of a chest or footlocker, it also served to hold the stone tablets containing the words of the covenant. The ark was constructed so that it could be carried with two long gold-plated poles running along its long edges. These poles were never to be removed. Long after the exodus was over and the ark was given a permanent place in the temple, the poles remained in place as a reminder that they were still a people on a spiritual journey. Since the ark served as the throne for Yahweh, Israel considered it to be their safeguard during their journey in the wilderness. During conflicts, they also considered it to be their assurance that Yahweh was not only with them, but was leading them into battle. Whenever they were about to set out from camp, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, and may those who hate you flee before you. When it was time to stop, he would say, Bring back, O Lord, the myriads of Israel's troops. According to Plasteris, the ark was an imperfect sign of God's presence. The function of the ark could easily be misunderstood so that it became at times the occasion of superstition. Are we guilty of the same superstitions in some of our religious rituals and trinkets? Is that St. Christopher medal in the car or that cross necklace anything more than a lucky charm or piece of jewelry if unaccompanied by prayer, piety, and an acknowledgement of God's reign over our life. On a more positive note, the ark was still a forceful reminder that Israel had no king but Yahweh. Likewise, even simple rituals and trinkets, viewed in the context of faith, can be forceful reminders of God's presence in our life. Plasteris goes on to describe the theological development surrounding the ark from its earliest traditions down to the teaching of the prophets during the exile. Early traditions held that the presence of the ark itself was a necessary condition for the presence of Yahweh in their midst. In contrast, prophets like Jeremiah insisted that the ark was just a symbol of Yahweh's presence. And so, in exile, with all of the material symbols of God's presence destroyed, a realization of the divine indwelling in the midst of Israel could still be sought. Yahweh's presence in this world would always be a sacramental presence, Plasteris writes. In other words, a presence symbolized and affected by a visible sign. But the sign is no longer to be a material object, such as the ark, but the people themselves. While the ark was to be the symbol of God's abiding presence, the people themselves were to be his sanctuary. Plasteris concludes this section by pointing out that the evangelist Luke brings this line of theological thought to its fulfillment when he sees Mary as the idealized virgin daughter of Israel, 
who is herself the living ark of the Lord. The details God gave Moses regarding the Ark of the Covenant were precise and the materials priceless because he wanted the perfect container for his words carved in stone. How much more would he want his word, Jesus, to have a perfect dwelling place? He chose a sinless, flawless virgin to be the Ark of the New Covenant. Plasteris notes several distinct parallels between how the ark is received on its return to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel and how Elizabeth greets the expectant Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 55. We must recall, however, that while Mary carried the Son of God, the new people of God are to be his sanctuary. As Christians, we are to be the bearers of the divine presence in this world. It is unlikely that any member of a high liturgical Christian denomination, a Catholic, Orthodox, Episcopalian, or Lutheran, for example, could read these chapters from Exodus and not see the Jewish roots of our own liturgies. I'd like to look at some of the liturgical roots present in our current lesson and explore their presence and use in Catholic liturgy today. We begin by considering the tabernacle itself. While its primary purpose in Exodus is so that God would have a place to dwell in the midst of his people, it is also important simply as a place of worship. Our relationships with other people are often associated with a certain place. To speak of a divine presence at a particular place often helps us make our encounter with God more personal. Further, we are not simply spiritual creatures. We are physical beings as well. We encounter our world and our God through movement and our five senses. Israel's tabernacle and our churches, chapels, and sanctuaries provide a tangible, reliable place for those encounters to occur. A familiar structure to an area of worship also brings order to our worship. The use of precious metals in the construction of Israel's tabernacle is reflected in various elements of our liturgical celebrations as well. While the general instruction of the Roman Missal directs that churches and their appointments should not be ostentatious, they should be truly beautiful and worthy of the dignity of the sacred place. Preference should be given to the use of natural materials as well. The tabernacles in our Catholic churches today, which contain the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, is similar in function to Israel's Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. As such, our tabernacles today are often plated with precious metals, as was the ark. Vince points out in our commentary that the use of the lampstand was for both symbolic and functional reasons. In our modern age, it is rare that candles are needed to illuminate the church and altar, but they retain their symbolic presence, reminding us today that Christ is the light of the world. Our use today of a red sanctuary candle near the tabernacle is reminiscent of the oil lamp used at night in front of the Holy of Holies. While our contemporary churches do not have tent cloths separating the various areas of the church from one another, most churches do have a structure that allows one to recognize the importance of space. The vestibule, or common non-worship areas, are typically separated by walls and doors from the nave where the congregation sits. 
Though there are few churches left with altar rails, most sanctuaries are still set aside through elevation or other structural devices. Then, within the sanctuary, the altar and tabernacle are often further distinguished through elevation or position. Israel's tabernacle contained an altar of sacrifice. Our churches do as well, although they are not used, of course, for animal sacrifice, but for participating in the liturgical encounter with Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Preferably, altars today are still to be made of natural stone. Even the vestments we use for bishops, priests, deacons, and acolytes today have their roots in Jewish liturgy. While not as ornate or intricate today as they were even 60 years ago, the chasuble, alb, cincture, stole, mitre, and other vestments still reflect that the men who wear them are set apart for God's service. As we conclude this lesson, I pray that the time you spent on these chapters enabled you to see that even the most tedious bits of Scripture can contain rich insights into our faith. God still dwells in the midst of His people, not in the Ark of the Covenant, but in the heart of each one of His believers. Please pray with me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you.